open up with me to John 14. We'll continue there. We had a great night on Wednesday night at the Wisely Pursuing a Spouse discussion. Uh, I survived without any fruit being thrown at me or any other major uh, rioting. That was a, a success in, in my books. Uh, but uh, uh, during that uh, evening, what I, one of the things I talk about is how the, the world is constantly discipling us in this realm of dating and relationships. And I was looking for illustrations of what exactly that looks like. And I thought of the, the lead song from uh, the Disney movie Enchanted. The lead song is called, or How, How Do You Know If He Loves You? And so I'm, I'm going to try and read the lyrics without singing them, because that would be bad. And this is a really catchy tune, so if you hear me humming it later on today, you know why. Um, but, but the lyrics begin with, how does she know you love her? How does she know she's yours? How does she know that you love her? How does she know... How, does she, how do you show her you love her? How does she know that you really, really, truly love her? And it goes on to, to list off a, a variety of things that are supposed to communicate love. None of them was marriage, by the way. But uh, among those things, well, does he leave a little note to tell you that you are on his mind? Send you flowers when the sky is gray. Hey, He'll, he'll, you got to finish the line. He'll find a new way to show you a little bit every day. And that's how you know, that's how you know he's your love. And so you see a variety of ways that, that, that the world is continuously discipling us regarding relationships. And if we were to, to ask that same question, how do, how do we know that, that Jesus loves us. We, we would have a, a multitude of answers. Uh, beginning with, uh, he lived and died and rose again to save us from the wrath of God and to set us free from the enslaving power of sin. If we were to, to ask the question about ourselves, uh, how, does, how does Jesus know that I love him? Short answer, he's omniscient. He knows everything. And, and that's what the, the Apostle Peter is going to appeal to later on in John's Gospel when, when Peter is going to be restored and Jesus is going to ask him three times, do you love me? On, on the third occasion, Peter says, you know that I love you. He appeals to Jesus' omniscience. But really that question, so, so Jesus knows whether or not we really love him. But it's also important for us to ask that question of how do how do I know if I really love Jesus? Uh, that's a very important question. How do you know if you really, really, truly love Jesus? Well, as we, as we drop into the Last Supper on, on Thursday night of the, the Passion Week, we're dropping into a conversation between Jesus and his disciples where he is instructing them and at the beginning of that conversation the, the emphasis was upon the fact that jesus loved his own if you look at chapter 13 verse 1 now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the father and having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end 
And, and he demonstrates his love tangibly for them that night by serving them, by, by getting up and washing their feet. The job that none of the, other, none of the disciples wanted to do, Jesus got up and did. Demonstrating his love and his willingness to serve. Then he, he spoke of a betrayer. And then Judas went out from among them. And it's now just the eleven who, who truly believe in, and are following Christ. And then Jesus announces that, that Peter uh, will... or he, I'm sorry, Jesus announces that he's going to be leaving. He's going to depart. And then Peter says, I'm going to go with you to death. And that's a, that's a communication, that's a, a proclamation of Peter's love for Jesus, right? He loves Jesus so much, he's willing to go and to follow him, even to die with him. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to do that. And see, it's easy to make that kind of a profession, and that kind of a proclamation. It's really easy to say, yes, I love Jesus. Many people say that. But how do we really know if we mean that, if that is genuine? And really, as Jesus is going to be teaching and instructing his disciples uh, that same night, he's going to redirect them. He's going to tell them and teach them what it really looks like to love him. If you uh, turn back over to John 14, that's really the theme beginning in verse 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, how humbling it is to read these words and see how you love us. How you care for us. How you long to know us. And to be united with us. And you, you loved us so much that you sent your son. Even while we were yet sinners. To live and die for us. That we might be retrieved. That we might be rescued and brought into fellowship and nearness with you. 
Father, we ask for wisdom, for understanding. As we read and study your word this morning, that you would help us to examine our hearts to really know if and how and truly do we love you. Give us understanding. May your spirit give us wisdom and insight. May your word bring conviction. But ultimately, may you be glorified. And may we be shaped and molded, conformed into the image and likeness of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. As Jesus is going to to address the disciples in, in verses 22 through 24, what we're going to study this morning, what we're going to, to see is him addressing their expectations. He's going to... Well, we're going to hear the disciples' expectations of, of what they expect from him and how that is different uh, from what is actually going to happen. And then Jesus is going to express some, some expectations of his own concerning those who would follow him, those who claim to love him he has expectations of. And, and these expectations are going to, to be true for the, the 11 in that upper room in the first century and all of us here in this room in the 21st century. But what Jesus expects of his disciples is consistent throughout time and throughout all places throughout history. What he is going to to call us to uh, is going to be the same as what he called the disciples to. What we're going to see in these three verses is really three expectations that that are expressed. In, In verse 22, we see the disciples' expectation of the Messiah. In that verse, we see uh, one of the disciples speaking who doesn't usually speak. We don't know too much about this, this gentleman. Uh, he is identified as Judas, uh, not Iscariot, which if I was, had that name Judas, I would, I would go by that all the time. Judas, not Iscariot. Yes, that's my full name now. But, but Luke 6.16 mentions two Judases, Judas, the son of James, who is speaking here, and then Judas Iscariot. And I've mentioned in the past, whenever the other disciples mention Judas in, in the listing, they are always pointing to the fact that he's going to betray Jesus. Like that was such a deep wound in their hearts and minds uh, that it, it, every time that they list off the disciples, they mention Judas who became a traitor, Judas who betrayed the Lord. But we don't have that much information about uh, Judas, the son of James, or Judas, not Iscariot. But it is he who asks a question. And in asking this question, he's revealing a little bit of his confusion and his own expectations of the Messiah. And his expectations, he's going to be consistently speaking for the rest of the the disciples as well. If he's confused, the rest of them are confused also. And his confusion flows out of what is said in verse 21, where Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And that last little statement is really what Judas is asking about, where Jesus is saying that he will disclose himself, he will reveal himself, make himself known to those who love and obey him. And Judas is going to be asking, well, well, wait a second. So this this is not what I thought. This is not what we understood. And his question is not so much, why is it that you're not disclosing yourself to the world? But but how is it? What, what has happened? Uh, 
what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? See, the, the expectation of the disciples was that when the Messiah came, he would, he would come and bring salvation to the Jews and judgment to the Gentiles. That he would come in glory to rule and to reign. They're expecting this glorious kingdom uh, immediately. Uh, and some of that expectation we've been uh, seeing in, as we've studied through in the equipping hour, the, the minor prophets. This morning we were looking at Joel and, and Amos, and Joel 3 talks about Yahweh coming uh, and roaring from Zion. Daniel 7 is going to have a, a similar declaration, as well as Habakkuk 3 and Zechariah 9. But if you turn with me to, to another passage, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you get a, a glimpse of what the Jews and what the disciples of Jesus were expecting, what they were hoping for. Focusing in on just a, a limited number of passages in the Old Testament, you would, you would come to this exact conclusion uh, that the Messiah is going to come and immediately usher in his kingdom. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Then a, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the, ro- with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips will put the wicked to death. And also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So that's really what Judas is asking. So when do you strike the wicked? When is this going to take place? Also expectations of a reversal of the curse that we see in verses 6 through 9 in this passage. And uh, it's going to continue forward through the remainder of the chapter talking about how the nations will be uh, restored and redeemed and, and ultimately judged. Uh, the, the chapter ends w- with a discussion about how there's going to be a, a path from Egypt and Assyria going into uh, the promised land that the, the Gentiles would come to know and believe in Yahweh. And so all of that is in in the minds of the disciples, and so that's where Judas is, is not Iscariot uh, is is asking for the clarification. Wait a second, we're expecting you to reveal yourself and disclose yourself to the whole world. But Jesus, you just said that you're really only going to disclose yourself to those who believe and and obey and love you. That's that's different. He has a a certain expectation, not understanding the the two comings of, of Christ. We all really have expectations about who God is what we want God to do in our lives, what we want God to do in in the world around us. We all have unspoken expectations. Sometimes those are difficult to identify. If you want to really figure out what expectations you have of God, just think about the last time you were disappointed with God or that you were angry with Him. Sometimes we get discouraged because God hasn't, maybe blessed us in the way that we were hoping for. Some of us might be hoping and praying for a spouse or for children or for a job or for a home or for a new career 
And other times we get angry with God because He has allowed us to suffer. We have an expectation that He would give us the good life. That He would make our path smooth without any twists and turns or ups and downs. We grow discouraged or angry with Him when we have had to walk through difficult times. Other times we get angry with God because we look out and we see the, the, the wicked uh, being successful in this world. And here we are maybe trying to, to follow God, to honor Him, and we're not quite as successful as we hoped. We see others who are doing their own thing and walking their own path. Why are they apparently being blessed? Maybe we're disappointed because God hasn't worked in a, a human relationship as we have hoped. Maybe we have been hoping and, and praying and lifting up a loved one to, the, to Him, and He hasn't saved them as we are hoping. All of those expectations, they're not, they're not sinful. But when they become primary, or when we begin to believe that God has an obligation to meet our expectations and to do what we want Him to do, that's when bitterness takes root, and that's also when we have become guilty of idolatry. We've become guilty of treating God as a, a genie rather than as a sovereign Lord. And our own expectations of God really can become self-made stumbling blocks when accompanied by that expectation that God is the one who must fulfill our expectations. And those who grow angry with God when He doesn't live up to their standards, you've probably heard that phrase before, I could never believe in a God who, and then you know, fill in the blank. God doesn't live up to my expectations, I won't believe in Him. But in that situation, I would argue that, that the fault lies with us rather than with God. If I were to say, so angry with my car right now, my car refuses to fly me to Hawaii. You know, you probably wouldn't say, yeah, man, be angry with your car. Can't believe that car. Could never believe in a car that wouldn't fly me to Hawaii. You, you wouldn't say those things. But because of the ridiculousness of my own expectations. You wouldn't say, yeah, you have every right to be angry with the car. You would say, that's, that's wrong. That is, that's foolish. How can you expect that? That's an unrealistic expectation that you have of that car. It's abundantly obvious in that situation, but oftentimes we have the unspoken, unaddressed expectation that God will answer and do for us whatever we want Him to do. That's not the case. When we are disappointed with God, it is our fault, not His. He's the perfect one, the holy one, the sovereign one. He's the one who is infinitely wise and good and loving. And he knows exactly where we need to go, and he's able to take us uh, along that, the right path to the right destination. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any expectations of God. We, we can expect God to be faithful to his word. Amen? Now, and so we, we can expect that. The issue lies when we have wrong expectations. And we need to allow the word of God uh, to shape and guide and direct our expectations and what we want from God. We need to examine our assumptions, what we are hoping for, and realize that God is not under any obligation to us. 
And this is, this is made abundantly clear in the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, when, when Job has been demanding answers throughout the entire book, God begins to, he finally replies to Job in chapters 38 through 42. And by the end of that, uh, Job is saying, okay, I deserve nothing. I'm just going to repent in sackcloth and ashes. God is trustworthy. We can't expect things from Him, but we need to expect things according to what His Word has said. He knows what is best for us, and uh, His Word and His Spirit will gradually correct our expectations. And sometimes God corrects our expectations by disappointing us. He he lets that balloon rise up, and then He says, okay, here's how I'm going to correct your expectations this time. Pop! There goes the bubble, there goes the balloon. Major disappointment. And then we realize, maybe I shouldn't have expected that. At other times, God is very, very gracious and very, very gentle with us. And that's what we see here uh, as Jesus interacts with Judas's question. Uh, as he responds, he's going to respond with a great gentleness and redirecting Judas, not Iscariot, and the other disciples uh, towards uh, a right expectation. And in verse 23, we see that the second expectation that is communicated, namely the Messiah's expectation of his disciples. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. And and Jesus' response here is a conditional statement that builds upon what he previously said in verse 21. In verse 21, he said, the one who loves him will keep and obey his commandments, uh, keep his word. Uh, and that promise of, of being uh, to that Jesus would disclose himself to those who love and obey him. And now Jesus is going to continue to express his expectations of his disciples. Uh, and Again, the one who loves Jesus will also keep and observe uh, everything that he has said. And and this is key because he's he's slowly shifting uh, and making clear to the disciples what he is calling them to. I love the way that one pastor put it. He says, this amounts to a declaration that the sad hearts and weeping eyes of the apostles would not be accepted by their Lord as any proof of their love. Obedience was the test that he chose. And this is interesting because if you think back to, to John 11, when Jesus is standing outside of the, the tomb of Lazarus, what's the, the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. And, and those around the tomb look at Jesus and they say, wow, he loved Lazarus based upon his, his tears and the emotion that he's feeling at, at the, the death. So they look at and, and say, wow, we know Jesus loved Lazarus because of his weeping. But, but here Jesus is saying that, that no amount of weeping or tears or even words is going to prove a love and affection for him. That's profound. He, he's saying if you really love him, you will obey. That, that is, that is the, the standard test. That is what is going to be uh, revealed from our hearts of whether or not we truly love Jesus, not tears, but obedience. And this verse shows us that if a person truly loves Jesus, there's going to be three other things that are also going to happen. 
Some of this has, is repeated from what has been stated earlier in this passage. But Jesus repeats himself because this is profound. And he wants his disciples to comprehend and to understand it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. That's the, the first thing that's going to, to happen. God the Father loves all those uh, who love his Son. And there's a, there's a unity from God the Father and God the Son. If you love one, you're going to love the other. If you're going to love one, you're going to be loved by the other. Second thing is that God the Father and God the Son will come into the one who loves Jesus. And we will come to him. And it's not just merely a, a coming down and then a, a, a departure. Right? It's not a, a plane coming, on, coming down, uh, doing a, a touch and go. A touch the runway and then take off again. This, this is a coming down and a remaining. And we know that because the third thing that is said by Jesus in this verse, the third result, we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. And what's significant is Jesus uses the same word for dwelling as he did back up in chapter 14, verse 2. If you, if you turn over there, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many, many abiding places. Uh, and in that context, Jesus was promising that he's going to go and prepare a dwelling place for who? For us. So he's preparing a dwelling place for us in heaven while we are here and he's there. But also, for those who believe in him and we're here, he's also saying that he's coming and he makes us his dwelling place along with God the Father. And in verses 24 to, or 25 and 26, we see that the Spirit is a part of that as well. So the triune God comes and dwells in those who know and love Jesus. Profound. So how is Jesus correcting his disciples' expectation? They wanted big, glorious return, big, glorious appearing. And they think that's the most profound way that the Messiah can reveal himself. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me, let me tell you what is actually more profound. The, the triune God coming and appearing, disclosing and dwelling within those who know and love him. That is profound. Uh, and, and the implications of uh, the triune God dwelling within us uh, are, are myriad and myriad. And this truth about what happens in salvation is, is so significant. And it gives us tremendous hope. And just thinking through how the Apostle John talks about salvation in his gospel. If you turn back over with me to, to John chapter 6. Seeing and, and understanding what happens in salvation gives us tremendous hope. John chapter 6, we see that, that God the Father has, has chosen a people to give to His Son. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. All those whom the Father gives, the Son is going to receive. And all those whom the, the Father gives, the Son is going to, to die for. If you look at verse 38 in that same chapter. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. God the Father giving a people to God the Son. Those are the people that God the Son is going to to live and die and rise again for. And God the Spirit is going to regenerate those hearts. He's going to give uh, new life. Uh, Those who are uh, called and who have been died for uh, are going to be saved and applied. uh, Salvation is going to be applied to them by the Spirit. And that's, that's the whole point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. He's saying, you must be born again, born from above. This really is the order of our salvation. The Spirit is going to to regenerate uh, a human heart. He's going to give spiritual life to us, something that we can't give in and of ourselves. At that exact moment, we're going to look to Jesus in faith. We're going to be willing to turn from our sin and to trust in Him truly and completely. And at that same exact time, the triune God comes and dwells within us. Living within us, abiding within us. He is there to remain. And then, then God calls us to be changed and transformed and begin to live according to what has already happened in us. We clean up our life Not to earn God's favor, but because God is already here with us. Sometimes we wrongly believe that that God won't come and be with us until we clean up ourselves. That's not it. God is more like a surprise house guest. What do you do when somebody, I know this doesn't usually happen because of smartphones, and if somebody comes to your house without texting or calling you first, you're like, why are you here? But at a different point in time, there was, there was times where you would just suddenly have people there at your door ready to come in. Right? Some of you remember those days. And when that happens, what do you immediately begin to do? Suddenly that person is there at your house. What do you immediately begin to do? I better start to clean up. This is uh, emergency cleanup mode. Right? I have guests. Other people are going to see this, what's, what's happening, what's going on. This has got to be cleaned up. Lickety split. See, that's really how salvation is. God saves us and comes into our heart and life with all of the mess already there. You don't have have to to try to clean it up ahead of time. You can't. But then he's there, and now what does he call us to do? He doesn't just stand there observing, hey, you missed a spot over there. Clean that up. He's there. He is with us saying, let me strengthen and help you. Let me wash you and help you to get this cleaned up. That, that's what we see here. This is the bigger picture of salvation. The end goal is God in us. That is a glorious thing. And, and really, this is the exact same pattern that God uh, laid out for us in the Old Testament. How did God rescue Israel from Egypt? He says, hey, you guys are a really sinful people. If you begin to, to clean up your act now, you might earn redemption. I might be willing to save you in a few hundred years once you clean up your act. No. God sends Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Ten plagues. And God has saved a sinful people out of slavery in Egypt. 
He saves them. He, he brings them to Mount Sinai. They're already saved. Now he says, okay, now I want you to live this way. And what's significant is what happens at the end of Exodus. You can keep your finger here. Go, go to the end of Exodus. After they, they built the tabernacle, and everybody loves to read all the details about the tabernacle. I know. But, but sometimes we, we, get, we get lost in those details and we lose sight of what happens at the end of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle and now throughout all their journeys, where, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So what happens at the end of Exodus? Who is now there at the very center of the camp of Israel? God. Not in like a small bonfire, but, but this is... How big of a pillar of fire would it have to be for two and a half million people to see? All day, every day, and every night. Right? If, if, they, if we put that pillar of fire in the Treasure Valley, how big would it have to be to be able to be seen way out in Caldwell? Think about that. The people of Israel immediately knew and understood who was there with them. God. And then... Once God is there with him, then what happens in Leviticus? Now this is how you be in right relationship with me. Through sacrifice. And this is how you're going to grow in sanctification. This is how you're going to be a holy people. And ultimately what Jesus is, is promising and what he's saying, this is more profound than Messiah coming just to judge. Messiah coming to save and dwell within his people. This is what the, the disciples are trying to wrap their minds around. Jesus is changing their expectation here. We have to, to come to grips with this as well because it's all too easy for us to, to think that we can clean ourselves up and we can bring God in because we cleaned ourselves up the exact opposite. God saves us and then calls us to be clean. And ultimately, we are just responding to what He has already done. And love is a far more powerful motivator than mere duty. Right? Anybody like to do things out of pure duty? Right? Everybody loves household chores? Anything, right? But what if you're doing those household chores because you're doing a surprise party for one of your family members? Right? Then th those chores don't feel like a drudgery because what's the purpose of doing them? Your goal is to love that family member. And then it's not a drudgery. You're like, I can do this really fast and with great joy. And that's what we need to see, that we, we respond uh, and love Christ and, and obey him because of he already has loved us. He's already lived and died and rose again to save us from God's wrath and set us free from the enslaving power of sin. So there is a call for us to respond. For us to respond to what God has already done. So will you respond to that? 
Will you look to Jesus in faith? Not trying to, to clean yourself up, but understanding that He has already acted to save you. He's already died and suffered. And if God is working on your heart here and now and calling you to turn to Him, do that today. Don't neglect that. Don't, don't push that aside. Respond. Look to Jesus in faith and trust in Him and Him alone. This is what He is seeking to to communicate not only to the disciples, but to us. That the triune God coming to live inside of us. This is a greater disclosure. This is what we need to see and expect and hope for. And we need to see and understand how this enables us to change. No matter what we are facing and dealing with, the triune God dwelling in us is going to help us deal with the problems of life. Everything that we're facing, we need to trust in his word and in his wisdom to live accordingly. Jesus sets up as his expectation for his disciples that they would obey him, that they would love him. Then in verse 24, he also communicates another expectation. This time, the Messiah's expectation of of non-disciples. Verse 24, he He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And really what he's saying in that little statement is what he has already said in verse 15 and 21 and and 23. But he's going to state it uh, negatively this time. Rather than if you love me, you'll do this. He says, the one who does not love me will do this. The one who does not love Jesus will not obey him. And thus, disobedience to Christ's commands is going to, to reveal that a person does not love Christ. This is not speaking about a person who disobeys him one time. Right, raise, raise your hand if you've disobeyed Jesus one time. Or many, many, many times. Yeah. What, what is being spoken about here is the reality of hard-hearted disobedience and, and continual, habitual disobedience. Or we refuse to obey him. It's not speaking about a person of, of weak faith who's, who's struggling in the battle against sin. That's all of us. But this is that person who has no desire to, to, to change. No desire to obey Christ. And Jesus' restatement here in this verse is important because it provides some wisdom. And, and there's a, a subtle implication because of this clarification here that again that not everybody who claims to love jesus actually does and that is an important category for our own thinking and so how are we to judge who truly loves jesus how, how does jesus judge who truly loves him based upon obedience some of you some of you have heard about what's taking place right now in the in the church of england in the Anglican Church, or as is also known, the Anglican Communion, because the, the Church of England had such a, a, a large, widespread influence throughout history because of the British Empire that there are, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England right now. Well, it's just profound to think about. But, but the Church of England recently voted uh, to allow their ministers to bless same-sex relationships. And so there's now a huge division in the Anglican church 
those in the global south and in, in Africa and South America are saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. You, you can't do that. That is that we can't bless those relationships. That, that's that's impossible. God's word very clearly says that those are sinful. And so now you have within the same church two groups and both of them, if you ask them, do you love Jesus? What would they say? They would say yes. And that's where this verse right here is important. How do you know which of those groups that's professing love in love for Jesus? How do you know which one truly loves him? Well, the one who obeys him. And the one who does not love him will not obey him. Important distinction here. His words here knife through false declarations of love. Uh, his words here run parallel to what is said in, in Matthew 7 and 12 and elsewhere, uh, where he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. The end of our verse here in, in John adds additional weight to the disobedience. Right? Because Jesus says uh, that his words are really the words of God the Father. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And a... a uh, another implication of the unity of God the Father and God the Son uh, and making clear rebellion and a rejection of Jesus is also a rejection of God the Father. <clears throat> and again, this is, this is an important verse because it helps us to build discernment as we interact with others, but it also challenges our own hearts uh, and forces us to examine our lives. But what, what is the fruit of our lives? Are we a tree with healthy fruit or are we a diseased tree with with rotten roots and rotten fruit? Do we have to evaluate that rightly and, and understand at one point or another, we were all diseased trees. We were all had rotten roots and rotten fruit. But the transforming power of the gospel, when the triune God comes to dwell in us, that's where there's a complete change. That diseased tree is completely healed and the, the, the root is healed and healthy and now able to, to bear healthy, sound fruit rather than diseased fruit. So this, is a, this is a call to examine our hearts and, and our lives. But if we see fruit that is not glorifying to God, well, we don't give up hope. We look to Christ in faith. And we turn to him, acknowledging our sin and our sinfulness, crying out to him to transform us, to strengthen us, to follow and obey him. This this passage shows us these three expectations, the, the disciples expectation of the Messiah. And then we see the Messiah's correction and uh, communicating his expectations of his disciples and of those who are not his disciples. <clears throat> And the world has its own expectations of Christians. The world is, is continually trying to, to press upon us 
to apply the pressure in subtle and not so subtle ways to get us to conform and obey it rather than obeying Christ. But what does Jesus expect to see in those who claim to love him? And really, if we were to limit our answer just to chapters 13 and 14 here in John, I think what Jesus expects, if you look back at chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus expects his disciples to stand out from the world by our love for one another within the church and love of neighbor outside of the church. But then also that can't be disconnected from obedience to Christ. Those are going to be the two things that are going to reveal who really, really, truly loves Jesus and who belongs to him. Close with with this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, this is a lesson of vast importance and one that needs continually pressing upon the attention of Christians. It is not talking about religion and talking fluently and well, too, but steadily doing Christ's will and walking in Christ's ways. That is the proof of our being true believers. Good feelings and desires are useless if they are not accompanied by action. They may even become mischief to the soul, inducing hardness of conscience, and they may do positive harm. And passive impressions which do not lead to action gradually deaden and paralyze the heart. Living and doing well are the only real evidence of grace. And where the Holy Spirit is, there will also be a holy life. If Christ has loved you and has come uh, to dwell within you, you will also in turn love him and obey him. And for that, we can rejoice that the triune God is there to help us, to lead us, to guide us uh, as we worship and strive to obey him. Amen.